All right. So this week, one of the things that um, I attempted was something called structuring. I told you guys either last week or the week before, I can't remember. Structuring is not one of my strong suits. Um, and with structuring, what in the inductive Bible is a little bit, I, I want to say it kind of falls along the lines of hermeneutics. Is that the right, did I pronounce that correctly? Hermeneutics. But it has to do with placing the right supportive statements underneath the main thought, right? The, the complete thought. And so what uh, the inductive method teaches, they have classes through precept where you go and take these, these full-day classes, and they teach you to put the complete thought to the left of your page on the, full, on the far side of the left, and then anything that supports it goes underneath. And then if it supports the next supportive thought, it goes underneath that supportive thought. So eventually you kind of go off this, in this direction. Um, my husband says, the reason I have such a problem with this is because I don't know what a complete thought is. But, <laughs> so, yeah, I know, you know, you do have to know what a complete thought is. And that, tr in, some, in some cases, it really is kind of tricky. Um, if you're an English major, you might do a better job at this. But I at least took a stab in the dark at it, and I gave it a, a try. So I do have a structured sheet here if anybody is interested in kind of looking at the, the concept, but please don't consider this a correct application of that, you know, that attempt, but at least you get an idea as to what it was I was attempting to do anyway. Um, but the neat thing about that is, it, it, how many of you have found, as we have been doing some of these um, observations, I, I guess is the way to say this, but the, as you are doing your observations, have there been sentences that have popped up here in chapter 3 that kind of leave you scratching your head going, now what is the it that they're talking about? Or what is this standard that they're talking about to attain to? Because um, one of the things that um, I looked at is, is in chapter 3. Let me see if I can find it now without my markings on this sheet. Um, he says in verse 16, however, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Now, when you're trying to come to an interpretation about what that standard is in the inductive method, what you want to do is there are two things that you, that you hold as pillars always in coming to interpretation. Number one, you never violate your known doctrines. Right, Marie? Marie's going, yes. And you let your immediate context rule for your interpretation. So whatever the subject matter and the flow of thought is, is going to help you to determine what that is making a reference to. Now, in this book, in this chapter in particular, you tell me, what are the, the two major things that seem to be on the mind of the author in this chapter? What is he, what is he exhorting these readers to do? I, I, did you notice that it seems like there's a lot of things where he's making exhortations? What are some of the things he's exhorting them to do in chapter 3? Press on. And not put the confidence in the flesh. So it's almost like, okay, now wait a minute. There's two subjects there. There's an isn't there. The idea of the confidence in the flesh, what subject matter is that in reference to? Sir, a truce... Right. Okay. In which case, your subject matter is justification, correct? But when he says, like Brenda says about, he keeps saying things like press on, right? 
That now what are you talking about? The pressing on part. That's sanctification. So it really seems like there are actually two subject matters, doctrinal root, at the root of what's being talked about. There are two doctrinal things that are being mentioned. And it seems like they just kind of keep flowing back and forth, don't they? He, on the one hand, sometimes the things that he's saying have to do with the fact that you are justified in him as, as it did back in verse, let's go back and look at it, in verse... Um, 8 to 10, he says, I count all these things as lost, those things that I used to do by my flesh, right, of myself, for the, uh, in view of the uh, surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. Now, this is interesting, gaining Christ in this case at this moment, he said, but that I may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So there they have the, the two opposing things. One is salvation by works, and the other is salvation by faith. Now, really interesting to me, too, is did any of you stop to ponder the fact that when he spoke about um, all the things that he felt uh, brought him to a place of being found blameless up there in verses uh, th four and five. He says, I myself, if I might have confidence, I might have more confidence than all these. And then he gave us this list. And we looked at this last week and we talked about how today we might even have those kinds of standards that some people approach God by. They say, well, I do this and I do this and I do this. And so I qualify, right? Therefore, I'm found blameless. But, the, but what he's bringing out is it's not, that, it's not by those standards which you are found blameless before God. So he says, so when he said that, I thought to myself, wait a minute. What he's saying there is that at least at this point in history where Paul is, the Jews had come to a place where they felt that they approached God and received righteousness from God by their works. Is that true? Did, did, did the works of the law ever bring salvation? They never did. Isn't that interesting? And all of a sudden I went, you know what? We have been guilty of doing the same thing even today. We've kind of brought, brought that same concept forward thinking that it's by works that we can be saved. And so he's bringing this up again. And even the Jews had gotten to a place in history where by works they are, think that they are being saved. But was that ever true? Think, tell me what, uh, what brought Abraham to righteousness. He believed God. Genesis uh, 15, uh, 6 says that, or yeah, right, 15, 6. He says, and he believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So the standard for God amongst the Jewish nation was never that you get righteousness or get salvation by working the law. Now, were they expected to keep the law? Yes. Why? Well, that's what they had fallen into. They think that that was their measure of righteousness. But really, what was the works of the law for? So they were under a covenant with God to be this peculiar nation. And by that covenant, they were required to keep the law. 
And by that covenant, if you want to call it a measure of righteousness, meaning right standing before God, by being obedient to it, God would what? What was the promise that God would do? He would bless them if they kept that law. But if they didn't keep that law, what? He would, he would bring the cursings that come to the land, to the, to the womb of the, of, the, of the people, to the womb of their sheep and, and animal, other animals, to the crops of their land. And, and at some point or another, if they wouldn't receive the rebuke of the Lord, eventually then God would bring enemies against them, and, do, and then what would happen to them? They'd be expelled off the land. So in, in that case, if you really get that full picture in your mind, the law was never for righteousness. It was a conditional covenant for the people while they lived on the land. It was in the New Testament, it says, what was the point then for the law? If the, is the law bad? What is the point to the law then? There you go. Part of it was that it showed us our sinfulness. That, that is one of the effects of it. And what else was it for? It really was very clearly to be a tutor to lead us to Christ. Now, the practicality of it is God used it to help people know what right was from what wrong is. You would know the heart of God, the mind of God, the, the will of God through the law, through the law he gave the people a way of knowing how to follow him and obey him. But it was never intended to be for righteousness, and we know that it wasn't a salvation covenant because of the fact it was conditional, and you could be rebuked and cast out of it if you disobeyed it or if you failed in it. It did depend upon your deeds, correct? If you obeyed it, you were in good standing with God. If you didn't, you weren't. But th with Abraham, when God, um, when God credited him as righteousness, what was chapter 15 of Genesis about? What did God do with Abraham in that uh, reference there? What big event occurred at that moment? The covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. Now, the Abrahamic covenant, what is God a promise in it? Is it conditional? Is it temporal? Is it depend was it dependent upon Abraham and his behavior, his obeying or not obeying? Was it? Does it do you guys, some of you know, some of you don't. Hey, I can't wait. After Christmas, when we come back in January, we're going to go through all these covenants, and we're going to do them inductively. We're going to do a topical study on the subject of covenant, and you're going to get to really nail these things down very clearly in your mind so you see the distinction between the Abrahamic covenant and the covenant of the law and the new covenant, and how they relate to one another. You know, this week in our homework, she says, how does these verses relate to those verses, right? Well, in that study, we're going to see how do these different covenants relate to one another and what was the function and purpose of them. I found, however, it intriguing in my thinking as I was evaluating what we were looking at here where Paul himself brings up the point that apparently at this point, these people had come to a place where they actually thought that their Jewishness and their obedience to the law had something to do with their blamelessness before God. Now, blameless in the keeping of the law, maybe, but he's speaking of righteousness. So he's talking about, he, they had actually fallen into a belief that they were saved by keeping that, Abra, that uh, uh, Mosaic covenant. And I didn't 
catch it right, right away until just this week. It was just, it's kind of a subtlety here. But I see this because see how he ends it in verse 6 of 3? After he gives this rendition of the things that he is bragging about, he says, But as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. So he does make that reference that it's in the law. According to the law, I am found blameless. But these people, how did he refer to them back in, in verse 2? And false circumcision. Last week, we talked about that a little bit. What, what were, in essence, what, what are the dogs talking about? What, what, was the, what is the quality that they carry with that identity as being dogs in the eyes of a Jewish person? Yes, scavengers. It, it has to do with impure uh, uh, moral conduct. They, they are just vile, um, licentious kinds of people. All right. What about the evil workers? What was wrong? What was the identity of a a person who has a, called an evil worker? Do you remember? Maybe I should just tell you, but if you can remember, huh? Okay. Well, the first one, the dogs, has to do with the mora the morals. Okay. The second one is corrupt character, but it does end up being bad morals, <laughs> because you start with with bad morals and you end up with a corrupted character, don't you? And if you have bad morals and a corrupted character, then the last one is of the false circumcision. Circumcision is based on law, right, and obedience to. Um, God, who, who God is and what his standard is. But in the case of these who have a false circumcision, what is it that they're basing their ideology or their, their, their religious understanding on for where righteousness comes from? What is their problem? The first one is moral conduct. The second one is corrupt character. What is this one? What's corrupted here? Faith, doctrine, that's exactly right, Margaret. It's their doctrine. So if you did not know that, you might want to make yourself a little mini list right next to that, that this is what this is. The dogs, the evil workers, and the false circumcision, these are pictorial statements by him that are showing you who these people are kind of in their heart, that they have, moral, they have impure moral conduct, they have corrupt character, and they have wrong doctrine. And therefore, he says about them, their righteousness comes from where? Let's make a list on this. False and blameless. The ones who are, have this claim, they're called um, dogs. They have uh, impure moral conduct. And then we have evil workers. And they have corrupt character. I think the nice thing about doing this particular list and really getting this defined, I know you actually weren't told to do this anywhere in your homework, but I covered it with you last week, and I was kind of hoping that some of you might go back and take a look at that for yourself because I think that by bringing this to a, a, a better understanding of what the imagery is saying here in the mind of a Jew, it helps you then bring it forward to you and I today so that we can say about people around us, we're not going to call people dogs. And it's not going to mean anything to us because in American culture, we like dogs, right? Well, most of us do, right? <laughs> okay, and then there's the last one are the false circumcision. 
and those have wrong doctrine. Okay, so for them, let's, let's make a list. Their righteousness What are they putting their confidence in, according to the text? The flesh. They put their confidence in the flesh. Now, if you want to define that, kind of elaborate on that just a little bit. What are they saying about the flesh? Mean, what does that mean, that they put their confidence in the flesh? Right. Like what all these things, like Paul just laid out. Look, these are the things that I found my moral righteousness in. My righteousness was found me blameless because, and he goes, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was of the nation of Israel. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee, and as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. So, therefore, as to righteousness, which is in the law, I was found blameless. So, he says ab about these kinds of people who have impure moral conduct, who have a corrupt character and have wrong doctrine. I actually think it starts with wrong doctrine and works the other way, but um, somewhere in there. Their righteousness, they have put their confidence in the flesh. All the things that basically the, the world says... Oh, you're an okay person. You're, you're just fine with God, right? Because you don't beat your, your wife or kick your dog or cheat on your taxes. Well, I hope none of us do, right? But does that matter in the eyes of God it, when it comes to attaining to righteousness? No, because attaining to righteousness comes how according to the text? Okay. So our righteousness, in order to have this correct doctrine, our righteousness, so we're going to put a contra contrast here. Let's put this up here. They claim to being basically blameless because Paul just gave us an example of that in verse in verse 5, he concluded all those things that he listed, and he says, I was blameless, right? I was found blameless. Well, our righteousness says, how do we uh, uh, achieve our righteousness according to this text? Yeah. It is derived through faith in Christ Jesus. Did anybody think about the, the way the, the phrasing, it's not Jesus Christ, it's Christ, Jesus. Did anybody think about how the, that's, what do you, have any thoughts on that? Just the, yeah, so what is the Christ? The Messiah, and then Jesus is his name in the flesh, right? And I think it's interesting that he start, started with the title of who he was, that he was the Christ, the, the one that was, would be the Savior. I think it's interesting that it's kind of put in that order rather than Jesus Christ, which is what I would normally want to say. But they put Christ Jesus. And I don't know if that means anything, but it just struck me. Okay, so it's derived through faith in Christ Jesus or in, um, in Christ. And it comes from God on the basis of faith. 
All right, so here's the contrast between the two. So in the end, then, we see that where do we place our confidence then is in Christ, right? And he, he says it in verse 3. He says, what do we do in 3? Where do we glory in verse 3? We glory in Christ Jesus. Now, again, what does the word glory there mean? rejoice thank you somebody wrote it down good job (laughs) because you know to find glory in him might mean to find confidence or it might mean to um uh the idea of glorying could be that which you derive your your pride or your self-esteem or that which which affirms you correct but in this particular one the word is actually the word rejoice delight in him in other words All right, so he says, we glory. In Christ Jesus. That's in verse three. Now, and then how are we to do that? When you follow that down, this is where I discovered in my uh, structuring of this book, how I saw what connects to what, what supports what, what are my ma- my major thoughts. In this one, he says that we are that we glo- hold on. Let me get to the right page. That okay, that I we glory in him. Now in verse ten, what is it that we are to do then? How do we glory in Christ Jesus? What is it about glorying in Christ Jesus? Okay. In the, the way it says here in verse 10, it says that we know him, right? So we look, did we look up the word know in our homework? I, I can't remember. Did anybody look that word up by any chance to know him? No. Yeah, did you look up that word? You're in it. Let me put it over here for you. Just in, it's it, it's just so that you you know what no means. <laughs> it's number ten ninety seven. The word no. It says it, we glory in Christ Jesus, and it says we in knowing Him. That's how we're glorying in Him in knowing Him. This relationship that we have with Him. In verse 10. So in verse 10, the word know is the word gnosko, G-I-N-O-S-K-O. Where is Craig Markley when we need him, right? (laughs) There are basically three ways that this can be viewed. And quite honestly, I look at these and go, you know, they, they really kind of all three apply and it's almost like they go back and forth, like where before I said to you, on the one hand, seems like there are two major doctrinal subjects going on in this chapter, justification and sanctification. And the, it seems like one has effect on the other. He's telling us to do something in response to something that God did for us, right? So he says this, the definition here on knowing, the first one is simply know, recognize, whoops, Uh, or to be aware. The second one is to learn, acquire information, uh, implying 
through personal means. Like this is interesting. Implying through personal means. What do, what do you think that means? If you're trying to acquire knowledge through personal means, what what would be your personal means? We're going to get to that one next. In this one, if it's acquiring knowledge to know him in the idea of learning information, how do you go about doing that? What are we doing today? Bible study. This knowing, there are three kinds of knowing. The first one is to simply recognize and be aware. In other words, to look around and acknowledge that you see, that you, be, that, that you have a... Um, a recognition. Those who have ears, right, hear. Um, those who hear the word and then respond, there's a, that kind of a knowing. It's a recognizing. The world, they are blinded to it, right? They won't see. They won't hear. They won't see. But for those who have a heart that will turn and see and recognize, that's a knowing him, to recognize or to be aware. The second, and you know, Romans 1 talks about those who who won't even, that deny him, basically. They'll, they'll worship the creation rather than the creator. But for the rest of us, this coming to know him in this way is simply, first and foremost, it's a acknowledging that there is a God. Hebrews says um, we must acknowledge that God is and that he is a rewarder of those that love him. That's what God requires for our relationship with him. So that's that knowing. The second one is the knowing where you're acquiring information by him. That's the depth of study like what we're doing here. Coming through research, through intensity, and it says implying per personal means of acquiring information, which means Bible study could mean sermons. It could mean just even conversations that you have. It could be listening to radio programs, wh whatever means by which you're acquiring knowledge, but it's truth. This is why in the opening in chapter one, he says through true knowledge, right? Through knowledge, then you are going to then have discernment and then you're going to have a, this uh, heart of love that's going to grow more and more. The third one though is to be familiar to learn through personal experience. I think it's interesting, though, that almost everyone in this room immediately jumped to number three. When they thought about knowing him, every one of you said, went to this one about this idea of a personal experience with him. Now, would you say that in chapter 3, well, actually in the whole book, that we have seen the subjects of coming to recognize who God is in this book. Have we seen the idea of needing to have an, a knowledge of him that is acquired through information? Yes, yes. And what, now also, have we seen the exhortations in this book that we come to know him experientially? So in the experiential knowing of him then, he says that we, we glory in Christ Jesus in knowing him. And quite honestly, it says all three of those can be true as far as a definition. So remember now, context rules for interpretation, correct? So now how do you pick which one in this case? It's not a trick question. I, I am baffled. I want to know which one. How do you know which one fits? 
Okay. All right. So, so it seems like, all, at least in the moment, it is speaking more about that. Now, if you back up, though, where it says, I count all things lost so that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Then verse 9, found in him not having what? Righteousness of my own, but, but having what? Having faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God through faith. Now, in that verse, which just preceded, it's almost like, the. Do you, are you seeing what I'm trying to point out here to you? There seems to be this back and forth that has a natural flow, that he is not limiting his statements to just one, one thing. He's saying both are true. Both are true. You need to have an, an awareness that there is a God. You need to acquire information and, ha- and know factual things about him. That it's do- Because he says here, be careful of wrong doctrine. Don't be taken in. Beware of these false circumcision, these evil workers and these dogs. Don't fall into that. You need to learn and acquire information about the true God, who he really is, how you truly come into righteousness with him. Because there's a, there's a struggle here. And what happens is Paul, uh, Paul has started this conversation with these people, talking about them rejoicing in their, their, their uh, relationship with God, rejoicing in their serving God. And then he explains to them how they're going to be able to do that progressively in chapter 1 and in 2. And now he gets to 3 and he starts opening it up with a warning about don't get, don't get uh, um, basically duped. Don't get um, persuaded that there's any other way to God except by faith. So then what does he do when he, he follows up after that? He goes right back to... This personal experience stuff. Now I want you to do this. Press on. Keep doing. Living this way. Pursuing him in that way. Living for him, right? All right. So he says, in order that we may know him, and in the knowing of him, what is it that he says? There's a couple of things. He wants you to know the power of the resurrection. The power of his resurrection And secondly, the fellowship of his sufferings. Fortunately, we are done with this column because that's the very last thing I can get on there. (laughs) We are now ready to move to the next one. Okay, so in knowing him, he wants us to know about him two things, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Now, when it came to the power of the resurrection, is this a subject matter now that comes up and you now have seen, because we talked about it last week, do you now see how this subject of the resurrection follows all the way through to the end of the chapter? Yes? Okay, now, when we, we're going to talk about the, how this subject of, his, of resurrection and how that ties into the day of the Lord. So we're going to look at the day of Christ Jesus, how he opens the book with that subject matter, and how that flows all the way through. So we'll get there in a second. But for right now, let's talk about the fellowship of his sufferings. What have you learned in this book so far about the idea of you being called into this kind of relationship with God? This is the experiential, uh, being familiar with him through experiential relationship. What have we seen so far? Okay, well, basically there will be. And how does Paul demonstrate that to us? 
his own. He starts by giving his own personal experiential relationship. And he says, look, here I am. I'm in prison. I may not, I may not live through this, but I think I will. He has, seems like he's, he's kind of in a tug of war about what he thinks God's going to actually do in this. He's not certain. He has great hope, however, and expectation that he will be released because he really feels that he still has work to do with them in particular, and probably with others as well, although he doesn't say that in the letter. But he's speaking about his relationship with him. He feels that he has a, he said back in, um, let me go back and look at it. I think it was in chapter 1, 24 maybe, something like that, 25. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all for your progress and joy in the faith so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. So he feels like he's going to come back to them again because he, he feels that he has a calling yet to help them in their progress and joy in the faith. All right, now, righteousness then comes by faith alone. Let's go back and look at that a little bit more carefully. We've looked at the word no. We now know what all the qualities of knowing him might be about. What you have to do now with each one of these is pull in the one that works correctly with the thought that he's expressing. And he really expresses three things to us. The knowing of, of him is, first of all, simply to know him in verse 10. Right? And he says in that... Um, what, does he, what did he pray for them back in 1.9 concerning knowing him? Okay, in real knowledge and all discernment. Now, I think it's interesting when you go back. So that's in chapter 1, verse 9. I found it interesting to me that with this particular book, it, it would actually be a, a probably better handled by the lay people of Christianity if we didn't have chapter divisions. Because this thought in this particular book really is a complete thought from, from the very opening of this book all the way to the end. And there's this intermingling of these thoughts, and he relates back to things that he's actually already said. He makes a statement in one nine that he wants, he prays for them that their love may abound more and more in real knowledge and in all discernment. And then here in chapter 3, he's talking about that um, our righteousness is der derived through faith in Christ. That's the, the correct doctrine that we're to have about the knowledge of God. And then in knowing him, these are the ways that he wants you to experience the knowing of him. Cool, huh? All right, so... If you wanted to contrast this, the real knowledge and all discernment, basically let's contrast this with not... I put it on here, not knowledge that comes by a false circumcision, Right? Now, what do I mean by that? They worship, and Paul worshiped, and he expressed it to us in the opening of chapter 3, how before his conversion into to true Christianity, that he worshiped God, but he worshiped God at that time under a false premise. 
a false way of approaching God, and he called it the false circumcision. Last week, we looked at the circumcision. Now, what was this speaking about? In the Jewish system, circumcision is what? The physical. Yeah, it's just this physical thing, this exercise of uh, a sign of the covenant, and um, it's an act of obedience to God, and it identifies you with God and the, the people of God, and it reminds you of the promises that God has about that circumcision. We talked about that. The, the promises to Abraham was for a land, a seed, and a nation, and when you get into Galatians chapter 3, who is the seed that was promised? Jesus Christ. Not his son, uh, Isaac, thank you, <laughs> forgot the guy's name, Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, I have to do it in that order, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, so not his son Isaac was the one that he was really uh, promising there, because when you go into Galatians chapter 3, he says that when he gave him this promise of a seed to come, he said he was promising, he was actually giving to him the gospel, and then later in Galatians 3.16, he says that seed is Christ, that's who he was promising to Abraham. And therefore, when Abraham believed God, it was credited to him as righteousness. So we see that right now he's saying, I want you to know him in real knowledge and all discernment. And the contrast that's going on in this chapter is, but not knowledge that comes by this false circumcision which is a physical thing now. Because now in the New Testament through the things that we looked at last week, how is our circumcision, uh, how does that occur for us? It's the circumcision of the heart. By what? That's right, by the Holy Spirit. It's the seal that God gives you through the Holy Spirit. Remember in um, Ezekiel 36, he says, uh, in that day I will make a new covenant with Israel. Not like the old. And he says, I will remove your heart of stone. I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will uh, pour out my spirit upon you. He, and he says, I will give you my spirit. And in, and in giving that spirit to you, what is he going to do then? What's that spirit going to cause you to do? To walk in his precepts and his statutes. Somebody open that up. Because really, I want you to see this. This is awesome. Go to uh, 36... Ezekiel 36, 20, I think it's like 25 or 26 is where it starts. Someone see if they can find that for me real quick. Because if you read that all the way from the beginning to the end, it actually it is a great companion verse for what we're looking at right here. Ezekiel 36, and I think it, it either starts in 25 or 26. I don't have it. Okay, good. Can, can someone read that for me? You want to read it, Sarah? Or, yes? Oh, it's NIV? Okay, that'll be fine. That'll be fine, yeah. Read from 36 to the end where he says what, he, what his spirit will cause you to do. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my law. Wow. Isn't that amazing? I will put my spirit within you, and that will, that will cause you to obey my decrees and my laws. So it won't be laws on the of, uh, written on stone any longer. It'll be by his spirit, he will write his laws on our heart. And by that circumcision, then we will be obedient to him. Which is, would you say that relates to anything that we're looking at here in chapter 3? 
Is that not in essence what he's saying here in chapter 3 of Philippians where he's telling them, after he tells them about the, the real knowledge of him, which is correct doctrine, is that it's by faith, not through the, fle- the works of the flesh, which is the circumcision of the flesh, but it's by the circumcision of the, of the heart, by the Spirit of God. Then he tells them, uh, once that doctrine is, is correctly in place, then from that my spirit will cause you to walk in my way. He's, and he says, but not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect. Now, he's not talking about what? Because it's not something we can attain to. Can you attain to your own salvation? So he's not speaking about justification there, is he? So what is he talking about obtaining in this verse? It is sanctification, yes. What did Paul, all the way back at the opening of the book, say that he was because of the law, according to his old way of measuring things? He was found to be blameless. So he's saying, you're not found blameless in that way. You are actually found blameless in this new way. Not by the spirit, not by the circumcision of the flesh, but you are, done, you are found blameless by circumcision of the spirit, of the heart, by the spirit. And then he says, for that, he says, I have not already obtained it. It what? Well, let's go back and take a look at this. This is interesting, the way this plays itself out. Let me see if I can find my notes on this. Um, i got to find the right sheet. Hold on, you guys, because my... Okay, I want to back this up. Kay asked us to look at how these verses at the end of the chapter of chapter 3 related to the things that preceded it, correct? And so in order to do that, you really kind of had to go back to your outline, did you not? Did you all look at your outline of your paragraph titles to see how does uh, the last paragraph of chapter 3 relate to that one that preceded it? So you're looking at Philippians 3, 10 to 16, and you're comparing it to Philippians 3, 17 to 21, or, or s- close to that in your, your, your verses, you may have cut it off slightly different, but that's where I cut mine off. Um, how does it compare? What does verses 17 to 21, where he says to them, in essence, to do what? What does he want them to do in 17 to 21? Yeah, walk according to that. He wants to, first he says, uh, join in following my example, right? Okay, so he starts with that. And then he says, walk. How? Not as enemies, right? But, yes. Say, I'm sorry, say that again. Okay, walk as, okay, let's put that according, I'll fix that here, according to the pattern you have in us. I better, I should be looking at my notes more carefully to make sure. Okay, that's in verse 17, okay, very good. Okay, now we're together. <laughs> I'm sorry, I have to, I'm having a little bit trouble because I don't have my observation worksheets. It's a little tough for me to keep my brain straight today. Okay, now, um, 
what else are we to do? How else are we to walk? If we're not walking as enemies to the cross, what are we going to be walk as? The contrast would be friends, right? How? In verse 20. As citizens of heaven. So really, it doesn't directly state it. It's an implied contrast there. He says, walk, basically walk as friends. You could put it that way as well uh, in verse 18. If, since you're not going to walk, let me look at my, my observation worksheet here and see how it is. It say, say it in 17. Uh, brethren, join in uh, following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern which you have in us, which is what we wrote down. For many walk of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross. So the contrast really then would be, well, then don't walk as enemies, but walk as friends, right, to the cross. And in walking as a friend to the cross, we are also walking according to the very next verse. He says, for what? Our citizenship is in heaven. So how are you going to be walking? As if you really are a citizen of heaven. Now, this is really interesting. I like the way that this, for me, this triggered some thought. Does this, does this trigger for you any thoughts of things that have preceded this in, in the, the other chapters even? Chapter 1 or chapter 2 or chapter 3 where he tells us that we are to walk as citizens of heaven. How we are to walk. See if I can find. Yes. Yeah, okay. So now you're jumping out of scripture to get your. But it's, it's it's a good valid point that this is not my home. I'm waiting for that home that is coming. And actually, he closes chapter three saying that he says because one day you're you're to keep your eyes have your eyes. What? How does he say? Ex, expectations. Expecting. There's a word in there, Martha. Can you find it in verse? Yes, eagerly wait. That's the word, not expect. Eagerly await. So we are to be eagerly awaiting, which is what you're speaking of, Mar Margaret, is that, that which is coming from heaven. And in that eagerly awaiting, what is it specifically that we're waiting for? Again, the transformation, this conformity into his glory. Our lowly bodies will be transformed into the glory of his body. This is speaking of the physical bodily resurrection. Have any of you guys really studied the physical bodily resurrection in, uh, this week at all? Have you gone and looked at any cross-references on that? I know. So, Martha, you're in my shoes today. <laughs> yeah, okay. What scripture tells us about this schematic change of design? Where, where do we find this in scripture? 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Someone open to 15. I want you to read the last few verses. Let me see if I can... Find, uh, where did I have that verse? I think, it's, uh, I think it starts at 50 to 58, something like that. 1 Corinthians 15. And by the way, there's a title for 1 Corinthians 15. Do you know what it is called? If you titled that chapter, it's the resurrection chapter. And in there, there's this, this conversation going on about uh, the reason for the doctrinal necessity of having a belief in a physical resurrection and 
in the days of Paul, the Pharisees and the Sadducees had this battle going on because the Pharisees believed in a physical resurrection, but the Sadducees did not. And you guys have heard it. That's why they're sad, you see, right? So, <laughs> because they don't have any hope. They don't have no hope for the resurrection. We have a hope. And here, in this, in this particular exhortation, Paul is saying, your real ability to rejoice no matter what's going on in our life, no matter what the difficulties is, is the knowledge that one day you will receive a reward of resurrection. That one day you get to leave all the difficulties of this life and the pains of this life, and you get this glorified body, the same glory of, as in your, uh, your Savior, Jesus Christ. That's why he says, keep your eyes basically heaven-bound for that day when he will come. And when he comes, he will bring with, you, with him your new body. He will give you your new body. So 1 Corinthians, do you have that, Brenda? Yeah, starting with uh, 50. Okay, perfect. Uh, it says, now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Are you at 58 now? I am 58. Okay, the, this, uh, this is what I want you to hear because... Now, he's laid out this fact that there will be a bodily resurrection, right? And that the, what is mortal will put on immortality. Then guess what he follows it up with at the close of all this rendition about the importance of the significance for the correct doctrine about the day of your glorification? What does he say? Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not wow if he is saying therefore continue on press on keep living for him keep aspiring to those things which you know are coming because one day you are going to get your reward that one day is coming when you will receive that body that is glorified that is what so it's really interesting here it is in corinthians the whole chapter is about the doctrinal truth concerning the resurrection and yet he concludes it with therefore keep pressing on keep moving on in your faith walk keep abounding in the works how does it say it? abounding in always abounding in the work of the lord knowing that your your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Isn't that awesome? That is really, if that's not an excellent cross-reference to chapter 3, I don't know what is. So you might want to put that down on your observation worksheet just as a future reference. And at some point, it really does do a great job, I think, of taking really 
everything that has been said in chapter 3 is said in verse 50 to 58 of 1 Corinthians 15, almost in the same words. All right, now, so he's saying righteousness in him alone, you are going to know him through a real knowledge and all discernment, not knowledge that comes by a false circumcision. So in this one, it's a circumcision... of the heart, and I wish I had my reference on that, but it's, and it's by the Spirit. But if you want to pull out a verse that would work for this in chapter 3, can you think of one that talks about how the Spirit um, has, a, has a part, basically, in this? Is there a place in here? We, verse 3. So read that verse 3 out loud. Wow. And if not, you can, I mean, you can also go to other, other books like Galatians and um, even Hebrews. I, there's other verses where you can see where it speaks about the Spirit of God and worshiping him, him in, in truth, right? All right, now, uh, John, the Gospel of John, he says, one day I'm going to send you that Spirit. You know, you, it, it, he was talking to a woman at the well and says, some of you worship here, some of you worship there, but I'm telling you a day is coming when you will worship me in spirit and in truth. So he says that in the Gospel of John. It is said many places in Scripture that he makes this reference to that. It's a true knowledge that comes uh, not through that false uh, circumcision, but through the true circumcision. That circumcision is the Holy Spirit. So if you didn't totally grasp hold of that, that this is the contrast going on here, you might want to make yourself a note. Go back to 3.3 and take a look that the true circumcision is by the Spirit of God through faith, believing in Christ Jesus as your Savior, and then God is the one then that, that does that, just as he did for Abraham, right? Credit it to him as righteousness. Okay, so by faith, knowing him by faith, In Christ, and rejoicing in Christ alone. So I'm going to just close that part up so that we can move on to the next point because we've got more to cover yet. All right, now, so first by righteousness in him alone, by knowing him. That's the first thing you're to know. The next thing he says in verse 10 about knowing, what else are you to know? Yeah, yeah, the power of his resurrection. So we've kind of covered it in, in some of the things that we've talked about concerning the 1 Corinthians 15. But in this, in this reference here, back in verse 9, the power of the resurrection is first demonstrated or alluded to by what Christ did, correct? What does it say in verse 9? Oh, go back to, let's do this. Go back to chapter 2, verse 9. That's even better. Let's do that one. And that might be the one that was in my little brain. 5 through 9 is telling us to, to have this mindset, right? Follow, have this attitude. And that is the attitude of Christ. And what was the attitude of Christ? What did Christ do in order to get to that place of the resurrection? 
He humbled himself. So we're to have an attitude of humility, and this humility is before who? God. We're not serving man, we're serving God, right? So be humble before God. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that in due time he may exalt you. Here he says... Um, he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross, and for this reason, then what did God do for him? He exalted him. Now, the exaltation here is talking about every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, but, but it, the illusion there is that there was a resurrection. And if Christ humbled himself before God, and as a result, there was a resurrection, do you see in chapter 3 where he's saying that to you and I? Do you remember how this book opened? What was the title Paul was given? What did he call himself? Bondservant. And what does that mean? What is the bondservant? I'll say it again. Okay. And you mean under servitude with a whip behind your back making you do this? It is a free will servitude. You have put yourself under that place of being the bond servant. The bond servant is not there by force. The bond servant is there by free will. And so Christ himself was there by free will. Now he's saying to us also, by free will, I want you to have a, knowledge, a true knowledge of God. And then by the Spirit of God, who, when he gives you the Spirit, will place, place it in you. He will cause you to walk in his precepts and statutes. But he will only do that if you yourself become this bondservant, if you are willing to be a bondservant to, to Christ. So he says, in verse 12 of chapter, let me look at this. If it's 12, 212. Um, no, it is 312, okay? I didn't write it down on my notes. 312. He says, mm, wait a second, I'm, that's not right either. Maybe it's 112. <laughs> I didn't put the chapter on here. I just put the verse number when you know. It's 12 of one of these chapters. I'm sorry, you guys. That's not it either. What did I do here? I'm sorry. Where does it say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling? 2.12. It is 2.12. There it is. See, it's a 12. I've got to write that down on my notes. So in chapter 2, verse 12, concerning... Um, the power of his resurrection, we are going to do what? What is he telling you? How can you know the power of his resurrection? By doing what? By working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Why fear and trembling? Does the resurrection in any way bring you to your knees in awe of the power of God? When he speaks about the resurrection, he says, by that resurrection, one day, what will all men do? They will all bow their knee. And he says he puts all things in subjection by that resurrection. I think that was in chapter 3 where he talked about that we may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. And then in verse 21, he says, um, your body is going to be transformed, have that same resurrection. And he says it's by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. That's a power. That's a, that's a resurrection. The know the power of the resurrection. First of all, let's look at this from number one.
I'm going to put it this way. Christ um, humbled himself. And therefore, basically, and God ex exalted him. Now, that exaltation includes the idea of the resurrection. So I'm just going to put it in that, in that way visibly for you so that you understand the flow of thought here. And so then... Knowing the power of his resurrection, he's saying, therefore, he speaks to us and he says, I want you to work out your salvation in fear and trembling. That fear and trembling is an awe of who God is and the power that he has. The power that, uh, do you ever feel helpless and weak in the world? How about this, this, this week? How about last night when we got the news, or yesterday afternoon, we got the news about this shooting that took place here recently? All these people just mowed down. Does it make you feel vulnerable? Contrast that in your mind, though, to the knowing the power of his resurrection. When we feel weak, when we feel afraid, when we feel that kind of fear about the world, what is the answer to give us the ability to take a deep breath and to move forward? Get on your knees before him. There's a verse in Psalm 80, I think it is, uh, that talks about, you know, I envied the world and the wicked and their prosperity and the, the way they seem to always get ahead. He said, until... I entered into the sanctuary of God, and I saw their final demise. So as you and I look at the, the difficulties that are going on in the world for us, this is more than difficulties. This is, this is, it's a form of terrorism itself, not the same kind of terrorism that we have from, from um, these uh, Islamic crazy people who come in and want to kill everybody in the name of their God. But it's a, it's a form of terrorism in that you feel vulnerable anywhere you go and you, you, know, you take your kids to the park. You don't know. Are you safe? You go, you go to a Fourth of July um, parade. Are you going to be okay? Can you go into a movie theater? Can you, now, can you go into your church and worship? Can we be in this classroom and be safe? Who can walk in that door and we're, you know, in a moment, gone? What gives us courage? What gives us rejoicing what allows us to rejoice in who we are in Christ Jesus what gives us that and the reason we don't have anything to lose if we do die is because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord so what is it that gives us the ability to rejoice in a crazy world that's filled with evil people who want to hurt us it's knowing the power of his resurrection understanding that that power took Christ and resurrected him and that same power will resurrect you and therefore you need to approach him through fear and trembling he says he says work out your salvation with fear and trembling not because you'd be afraid of God but because you are to tremble at the knowledge of his power and that trembling is to bring you on your knees and to rejoice in him to glory in him your glory and confidence is not in your flesh. Can your flesh save you? Can, can your flesh even change one thing that's going to happen in your life, good or bad? No. But what can give you confidence to walk daily in a way that's, that's uh, got joy in it, as Paul did? There's Paul in prison. His life's about to possibly end. And he says, 
whatever. <laughs> right? Whatever. If I live good, if I die, great. <laughs> right? Either way. He's actually happy about the idea of maybe dying. And having that ad- attitude is only coming. Who does not fear death? Only those who have a confidence that, the, that death is not death. It's a, it is a step from life into eternal life. Those who do not fear, fear death are those. Now, I'm not saying the process of death. <laughs> Some of us fear the process. I mean, I don't want to go through a horrendous you know, battle with cancer and be in terrible pain. I mean, nobody does. But we don't know our journey. What we do know this is we have the power of his resurrection to fall back on. This is the knowledge, the true knowledge, the doctrinal knowledge of who our God is, that he himself resurrected. He sits at the right hand of the throne of God. That same power that resurrected him, he will exert upon us and bring us to into glory. That's what he wants us to know. And so when you go back to chapter 1, verse 9, and he says, this is what I pray for you, that you have this knowledge in real knowledge and all discernment. I want you to know him. I want you to know the power of his resurrection. Because through that, then, in fear and trembling, work out your salvation. Now, what does that mean? Work out your salvation. At this point, what? How do you interpret that? Oh well. What do you think? Based on your knowledge of how you get saved, can you work on that? Uh, I can't do it myself. There you go. We. After you're in that salvation relationship. There you go. So, based on what you just said then, what is the working out in fear and trembling talking about? Is it talking about justification or sanctification? It's speaking of sanctification. Does, see, all you have to do is you have to weigh your doctrinal truths and say, I will not violate my known doctrine. I know it is not by works that you are saved. It is by grace. And since I cannot work for my salvation, when he says work out your salvation, he's not saying work to get your salvation. He's saying the salvation that you have by faith because righteousness has been imputed to you through faith from God. God has given this to you. It's a gift of grace. Now that you're in salvation, work it out. And so in chapter 3, then he says, as he gets to those... um, Verses, not that I have already obtained it, already obtained what? This working out of his salvation by fear and trembling. Also, interesting to me, go back to chapter 1, verse 6. Somebody have that handy? Do I have that in here somewhere? <laughs> I don't have it on here. But in chapter 1, yes, uh-huh. Wow. Does that not actually simplify your understanding of work out your, your what, what was the, re, the scripture on this one of fear and trembling? That was in 3? 2.12. Thank you. I'm going to get it on here too. I need to make it up here. 2.12. Okay. And then he who began a good work in you, uh, I'm going to, 
pull open my... We'll perfect it until the day of Christ. That's in 1-6. Wow, that really makes sense now, doesn't it? Knowing the power of his resurrection, that Christ himself humbled himself before God and God exalted him. He has promised us in, also, so that was in, uh, that was in chapter 2, like 8 maybe, right? Let's get the references down here for you so we have all of them. 2-9, um, thank you. Two nine, And then when we get to chapter 3, verse 21, he speaks about that same resurrection will, you will be exalted by. Know the power of his resurrection. He resurrected, uh, he was himself resurrected. God resurrected him after he humbled himself and was obedient, obedient even to death on the cross. He says to us in the opening of that, I want you to have the same attitude which was in Christ Jesus. You're to have it in yourself, that you're to have that kind of humility and that kind of willingness to suffer. What, and you don't know what your suffering will be. Everyone's is different. But whatever your suffering is going to be in your life, be willing to do that, which God calls you to, knowing this, that you're to, to work out um, your salvation in fear and trembling, understanding the power of his resurrection is working in you. He says in um, 2 Timothy chapter 2, I think it's like 17, he says, I've not given you a spirit of uh, fear, right? Not that kind of fear, but a spirit of power, love, and a sound mind. And that power is the dunamis power. It's the resurrection power that now lives in you. Now we're back to Ezekiel chapter 36, where he says, I'm going to place my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my precepts and statutes. Wow. So that's the power he wants you to know. And if that's not good enough, he wants you to remember this. He who began a good work in you will complete it. He will perfect it. He is the one at work in you. Do you remember the, the verse that we looked at a couple weeks ago? It says, it is he who, who is at work in you to, to, work, to work and to will for his good pleasure. And remember what we said about that? What, what did we say about that? What did that mean that it was, it's he that's doing this? If you are doing anything in your life, whether it's going through a trial or whether it's serving God, either way, who put that in you? God did it. He's the one that actually put the idea in your head to go and do that thing. I, you know, I've been talking to my husband um, a lot the last 24 hours now about um, this thing that God had placed in his heart to do start a security team for our church right and in light of what just happened now it all it does it has just strengthened the knowledge that this is really from the lord this is this was god's plan that this church begin to become alert and to be prepared for these things and i i think about what we looked at back when we looked at nehemiah remember i took you back to nehemiah chapter 2 i think it was and we followed through and we said when nehemiah was taken back to jerusalem and he surveyed the walls and then when he made his proclamations to people who was it that he said put it in his heart to do this it was god that put it in his heart so every one of us, no matter what your calling is, no matter what your work is, God is the one who's putting these things in your heart. So if you ever get a little, you know, a little thing going on in your head, bouncing around, you're thinking, I wonder if I should be doing this. 
Maybe you need to get on your knees before God and pray and say, God, is this from you? Right? Is this what you want me to be doing? And remember this. He says, in fear and trembling, work out your salvation. The power of the resurrection lives in you by his spirit. You have a circumcision of the heart. He will do it anyway. It's he who's at work in your heart. It's he who's the one who's willing you to even want to do it. And it is he who will also carry it out to completion until that day when he brings you to your resurrection. You don't even have to rely on your own abilities. I don't have to rely on my abilities to stand here week after week and teach to you, even though I may not do it perfectly every week. And even though I may stumble over my words, oh well. I'm here because I love the Lord. I love his word. I want to grow in my knowledge of him. I want you to grow in your knowledge of him. It's a passion he has given me. I didn't do it. Trust me, I didn't do it. Who would want to be up here and be vulnerable to criticism or whatever? Not that any one of you are ever critical. You guys are awesome to me. But who would do that, right? And yet, here I am. So if you are being called, I want you to remember the power of the resurrection lives in you. If you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you, the power of God's resurrection lives in you. He will do it in you because it is he who is at work in you to do it. After all, it's his church. It's his mission. It's his, it's his everything. So he says then, as another thing he wants you to know, is that this is very interesting. I have to put it over here. Um, last one is to know what? In verse 10, one more thing. Three things to know. To know him, to know the power of his resurrection, and to know what else? Mm -hmm. The fellowship of his sufferings. Okay, so if we're going to know the fellowship of his sufferings, Paul says, it follows it up in saying, now join in following my example, right? We started that over here with the outline. I'm going to go back to that in just a minute. Then he says, I want you to walk according to this pattern. So we've already put that out there also. Walk according. I'm just going to expedite to get us uh, to the next place so we don't have to rehash what we've already talked about. Walk according to the pattern. You have in us. And that's in 17. Now, chapter 2, he has just given this, all of this example. When he says, follow the example you have in us, what example is he talking about? It's not in the immediate text right there, is it? Where is the examples that he has given to you? Where are they? Where do you have to back up to to find the examples? When he says, do this, follow my example, have the same attitude in you as this. This is how I want you to live and to, wor to, to work and to work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Where, does, where do you go back to in this, in this book? Yeah. Okay. He can go back to the... So you can actually stay in the immediate chapter and back it up, but then if you... What about chapter 2? Can you go back to chapter 2? Oh, yeah, big time. In chapter 2, who, where is, what are the examples that he gives you there? Yeah. 
So in chapter 2, he speaks about Christ's example. And then he also gives you human examples. Who are they? Paul's, Timothy's, and Epaphroditus. E-P- oh, his name, E-P-A-P-H-R-O-D-I-T-U-S, Epaphroditus. Well, couldn't he have had an easier name like Bill or Eugene or, you know, no, it has to be. Okay, so he says, know the fellowship of the suffering. Join in following my example. Now, if you just stopped right there, the first example he gave us was in chapter 1. His own example of being in prison, correct? So that example, walk according to the pattern you have in us. Who's the us? Well, first of all, first and foremost, Christ's example, which we've just talked about a little bit. But also Paul's own example. He says in chapter 2, what is he doing? What's going on in his life? Go to verse uh, 17, I think it is. Yes, 2.17. What's happening to him there? What What does he say of himself? Yeah, I am being poured out as a drink offering. Now, why does he say that? What does that mean? What is a drink offering? I loved what we learned about that. Yeah, so it was a sacrifice that was poured out on a sacrifice, right? Interesting. And when he says about that, I'm pouring my life out. My life is being poured out as a, as a drink offering. What is a drink offering a required sacrifice? What is it? That's right. It's not obli- obligated to, to be uh, done. It is a free will offering, which takes us back to the bondservant word again. So the idea that it's free will, I'm doing this of my own free will as a bondservant. I am giving of myself freely a, a, a gift to the Lord by pouring out my life, the service of, of my work, upon the service of your work. Uh, and in, in essence, what he does say there when you go back to chapter 1 is, he says, I'm here because I want to ma- uh, make sure that you all understand um, the joy of the Lord and your, and oh, let me look it up because I've forgotten the exact words and I don't want to mess it up because they do it so much better than I. God is so good. Um, that he wants, he thinks that he is going to remain and continue with them all for their progress and joy in the faith. So that's the the drink offering that's being poured out for their progress and joy in the faith. He's pouring out his life as a sacrifice upon them who are sacrificing themselves. And so he he speaks to them of the fellowship of his sufferings. Well, his suffering here is that of that drink offering. It's also that suffering that you see in chapter one in prison, him being in prison for uh, for the gospel. Right? And then he says, um, he concludes that. This is really interesting. I think this, can, this particular statement here goes back to chapter 1, verse 29. Somebody look it up and read it to me. Because if I'm wrong, you correct me on this. But l- take a look at that 129. Wow. 
I th- I, when I read that, when I went back and was kind of trying to find the flow of thought, because I, I got hooked on this thing where Kay says, how does these last chapters relate to the ones before? Well, I kept going to the one before, to the one before, to the one, and trying to follow all the links. And guess what? Those links took me all the way back up to basically the very beginning of chapter one, where he starts out saying, I'm a bondservant. And then, he sa- and then he says, it's God who's at work in you to will and to do his good pleasure. He is going to bring you to perfection until when? The day of Christ Jesus. He talks about the resurrection right at the beginning of the chapter. And it comes all the way now where we are in chapter 3. That we are waiting for that day of Christ Jesus, which is the day when we will receive the glorified body. He's just, boo. This whole thing just kind of links to links to link. This book cannot be handled a chapter at a time. It cannot be handled a segment at a time. It is a flow of thought that begins at the beginning of the letter, and he carries it all the way to the end. And so you can never isolate one point and say, well, he's only talking about this. He's just talking about the head knowledge. You know, the word of God, the, no, the knowledge of him. Um, oh, this is just the idea that you see God, that you recognize there is a God. That's in he, we see that, that's in Hebrews, um, is it 12.6? Somebody look that up. 11.6, yeah, that makes sense. Is that, is that it? Somebody look at that one. Because I like that verse as a, as a support for this. It just came to me. <laughs> Somebody have that? Okay, very good. Now read it nice and loud so that they can hear it on my mic. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So this is to know in meaning, to recognize or to be aware. They must, they must believe that God exists. And that God rewards those, is it say those who love him or seek him? Those who seek him. Whoops. I love that. That's pretty cool. Isn't this coming together beautifully? <laughs> this book is, this, I have decided, I think Philippians is one of my favorite books now. I am falling in love with this book. It really is it is a, I know I love them all. Every time I get to a new one, it's like, a, I've never studied Philippians before. Not, like, not thoroughly like this inductively. I've dropped into it on occasion, and, and I love what I see. But this is the first time I've really analyzed it to this depth. And it is such a book of exhortation to my, in my spirit, in my soul. It really satisfies a need in my spirit. In a world where there is so much anger and, and hatred and murder that is going on on all kinds of levels and and the the response by the unbelieving world those who live by the flesh those who don't yet have a circumcision of the heart their response is is visceral it's evil the way that they are dealing with things that they don't like or outcomes they don't like or the world and their behavior i'm wondering about this young man who went in 20 something years old I mean, young, 26, he's young. He had a wife and a young baby, and he walks into a church and mows down 26 people. 
what was going on in his life? What was missing? Well, I know one, one thing that was missing. Yeah, the Spirit of God. He didn't have hope. He had no hope. He did not, uh, he did not know God, a real knowledge. He didn't have the circumcision of the heart. He does not understand the power of God's resurrection. And he certainly does not understand the idea of the fellowship of his sufferings. Because even if he himself was a man who was going through depression or PTSD or who knows what his deal was, right? Even so, there is no excuse for that kind of reaction to the world. Yes. Really? That will be an interesting twist to things. If it goes that way, then we're looking at a whole different kind of thing that was going on here. But we'll have to wait and see because it's an unusual way for Is Islam to handle it. But, but we'll wait and see. Very interesting. All right. So now he says, know the power of uh, Paul. This, let me just uh, finish this part up where it says, Paul expertly weaves together his exhortations to die to self spiritually in this life while keeping your eyes on the coming Savior and our physical resurrection. Someone go to Romans 8. Read for me 11 to 18 as well. Here's another support verse that kind of basically expresses the same thing we're looking at here in Philippians. 8, 11 to 18. Who would like to read that for me? Thank you. Uh-huh. I hope that's right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that would be good. <laughs> Wow. Does that not really tie nicely into also what we're looking at? Look at how many cross-references there are. And I didn't even begin to give you all the ones I looked up. There's a bunch. But that, that idea about, about the idea that it, it, it basically it proves that you are children of God, right? That when you walk by the Spirit of, of God rather than by your flesh. I thought about that one in uh, chapter 2, what he says, where he starts to exhort them in verse 14, and he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be what? Yeah, blameless. Remember what Paul said about himself? By the law, he had been considered blameless, and that that's not the kind of, of, of blameless that we need. We need the blamelessness that comes through the righteousness of Christ alone. And then he says, you will be blameless and innocent, 
children of God, that you are going to prove yourselves to be children of God by innocent and pure behavior, by this, by this walking with God in righteousness, exhibiting or, or uh, living through the example of Christ's example. If you are living that out in your life, then you will prove yourselves to be children of God. This is what 1 John teaches. These things have been written that you may know that you have eternal life. He gives a whole slew, all five or six, I think it's five chapters in there, of all the ways that you can examine your life to say, I have examples in my life that show me, that give me confidence to say, although I know I'm saved by grace, but I am to walk it out. And if I am living in this manner that 1 John gives us, then I know that I have proven myself to be a child of God. These things have been written that you may know. We're going to do First John after we do Covenant in the, in the new coming year. And he says, therefore, you'll be blameless and innocent children of God, of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Is that not explaining what we're looking at today in our world? And he says, whom you appear as lights in the world. So you and I are to walk as lights. So how the righteousness in him alone, we are, we are to know him. We are to know the power of his resurrection. And we are to know the fellowship of his sufferings. And he says of that, he concludes it by saying in 129, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. Wow. Okay, so let's put that number four. And all I'm going to do is put the reference down, 129 called to believe and suffer you are not only called into salvation to believe and if you think that's the end of it you've got you've missed part of your doctrine your doctrine is incomplete it makes me think of uh, the book of acts when paul is journeying through and he hits ephesus and it's the last time when you see the filling of the holy spirit and the speaking in tongues in that book and he approaches them and he says um have you received the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And they said, no, we've only received the baptism of John. Well, why is that? Because they hadn't had the whole story yet. They only had part of the gospel. They had the gospel up to the point of John's teaching. So now Paul gives them the rest of the story. And what happens? The Spirit falls and they, and they are filled with the Holy Spirit. And they begin to speak in tongue as a sign that the Spirit had fallen to the uttermost parts of the world. So here he says, you're not just called to believe, but you are called to suffer. And so now he says of us, that's why you need to know the power of his resurrection. You can't go through that suffering. You don't know the power of it. And you certainly cannot do it if you don't actually have the circumcision of the spirit either in you. If you don't have his spirit within you, it is he who's at work and to will and to do is his good pleasure. You can't do it if it's your own effort. It's not going to work. It has to be God at work in you. Okay, now, the day of Christ Jesus. We've got about 15 minutes to cover this last section. So we're going to start with 1-6, where it says, He who began a good work, He who began a good work in you will perfect it. Until, I think that's interesting, you've got to put a clock on that word, until the day of Christ Jesus. 
Is my writing getting sloppier or what? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm looking at this going, I don't know if I can even read that. Okay, now, I want you to go back with me to verse, the, the first reference to the day of Christ Jesus uh, after verse 6. Look in verse 10. You should have it marked with, you know, it, by your keyword marking. The day of Christ Jesus should be marked as a keyword for you in this book, right? What do we see that he is exhorting them to do then until the day of Christ Jesus? Because we have that word until. I'm going to put a clock on it for you. He's going to, uh, he will perfect it. It what? A good work in you until the day when he comes to give you your glorified body. So now what we want to look at is what are we to be doing until the day of Christ? When we, now that we know what the day of Christ is, and there were a bunch of scriptures. Did anybody do any research on the, the, on the, re, the day of resurrection or anything like that? Do you have anything you want to share on that? Any, any, nobody went on rabbit trails this week? Listen, this week's homework was so simple, you had plenty of time for rabbit trails if you'd wanted them. Um, how many of you spent quite a bit of time on the personal application parts of that? Think on that for a few minutes because I'm going to get back to that in a little bit. I want to hear from you, from you some of the things that God has been talking to you if you have anything to share. Um, he tells them in verse 10, the next time he mentions the day of Christ Jesus, what is it that he wants for them to be what? So interesting there's that word blameless again. So Paul has said he had a blamelessness that came through the law, but now he counts that as but rubbish. And he says, I want you to have blamelessness or righteousness, which comes by real faith in Christ Jesus, right? And Margaret, what was your question, dear? That's not verse 6. Oh, okay. Thank you, my dear. 1, 6, okay? Okay, then in verse 10 he says he wants us to be, be blameless, Oh, be sincere was the first word. I've got to get it in the right order, don't I? Okay, let me write that again. Be sincere and blameless. That's what he wants from us, to be blame, uh, sincere and blameless. That's in 110. Where is the next time? Well, he tells you then, so basically work it out. Work out your salvation. I just added that in. In my notes, I just kind of added it in as the next progressive thought. Because he says he follows it in the, um, where does he say it, uh, in 2.12. Because that's what you're do, to do, work it out. Be sincere, work it out, then what else? Okay, yes, yes, yes. Okay. Yeah. And in that 216, what does he want you to do? Uh, does it t talk about proving anything? There you go. Prove yourselves. Children of God. Uh, that was 16, you said? All right, 216. And then he gives it the word again, blameless. 
and innocent. We have a repeated theme going on here, don't we? The idea that blamelessness is something that we are to aspire to. Where in the beginning of this, Paul says of himself, as to the law, I'm blameless. But then he counters it by saying, I count that all rubbish. So is he saying you and I should not strive for blamelessness? No, because now he goes on, and what we're seeing here, if you back up your, your thought all the way from that chapter, you keep backing it up. Every time he's giving you an exhortation, he is exhorting you to seek after blamelessness, to seek after a life that's, that proves itself to be that you are children of God. Blameless. And it, so it, it's, yes, you're saved by grace, but now that you're saved by grace, what? Act like it. Act like it. <laughs> That's a novel idea, isn't it? You know, what I remember when we were doing the book of Ezekiel, one of the problems that Israel kept having was that they would defame God's holy name. So over and over, what did God say that in that last days he was going to do concerning his name? He was going to vindicate it. How was he going to vindicate it? By coming and fulfilling everything he promised. Everything that he said he would do, he was going to accomplish. And so... And the reason he was going to do it, was it for the sake of Israel that he was doing it? Because what was, what was Israel like in his, uh, his own words? Stubborn, stiff-necked, rebellious, right? Disobedient. They were lifting their skirt on every hill, worshiping all these. So God wasn't doing it because they were so worthy of it. For that matter, would you even say, even of your own personal self, you don't have to say out loud, but, you know, are we worthy? Do we deserve the grace of God? Not really. That's why it's called grace. It's unmerited favor, right? And yet, when God does do that for us, once he pours that on us, our response is to be that we are to commit ourselves to be a bondservant to him. And according to Romans, I think it's chapter 6, we're to be a bond slave or to be a slave to righteousness. We, have, we, now, we now put to death sin. We, have, we used to be slaves to sin, but now we're not supposed to be slaves to sin anymore. Now we are to be slaves to righteousness. So as bond servants to him, therefore we are to prove ourselves children of God. And the way we do that is by living blameless and innocent in the world as lights in the world. Be a light to the world, right? I think that's also 2.16. I'm not positive, but I think it's right in there. So prove yourselves children of God. Be blameless and innocent. Live, live as a light in the world. Don't do crazy things like take a gun and mow down people when you're angry about something, when you're despaired about things. There should be no despair in you. Paul says rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord, in your knowledge of him, in your, in your understanding that his, that his spirit dwells within you and that one day he's going to bring you to be with him. And that's going to help you to endure in whatever life brings out. Prove yourself. Oh, okay, 2.15. Now let's go to 3... three um, 315, I think it is. Right, it has to be. I put two on here, but I think it's three. Now comes this tangled up mess that we need to untangle again. 
brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it. It what? His what? Okay, could be, yes. He hasn't arrived to that, but you know, that's pretty obvious. Wouldn't you say that he knows he hasn't arrived to resurrection yet? He knows that's ahead. So what is it that he's striving for? According to this, what is he saying that we are to strive for? Blamelessness, working out salvation, proving yourself children, being blameless and innocent, being a light in the world, and others. I mean, there's a bunch that we didn't hit on. We, we skipped a bunch. But there are a lot of other exhortations in there about how he wants you to walk in. Don't, don't be grumblers and, uh, what was the other, grumblers and disputers, I think it was, right? But, but rather walk as children. You have, I'm sorry. Right. Now, see, this is interesting. The wording in these verses is tricky. What you have to do is say, first of all, I know that I'm not working for my resurrection. That resurrection is a, is a given if you have the Spirit of God. So he's saying, but I haven't obtained to it yet. Uh, well, we know he hasn't obtained to it. The, the logic would be, would, if I said to you, Margaret, I haven't reached my resurrected, glorified body yet, you go, uh, duh. Right? So it would be silly for him to say that. So what is it that he's trying to attain to? I think it's to all these things that he has said. He, is a, he, he had started out by saying, by the law, I was blameless. But now I'm counting that as rubbish. Now I'm moving forward in my, my faith on Jesus Christ as my righteousness. And he talks about pressing on to the goal of the upward call, right? But he says, but he says then about all these things that he just talked about. So this is where you have to actually go back. There you go. I'm not yet perfect. I'm not, I am not fully lived all this out. He says, I am to live in fear and trembling. I'm to work out my salvation. I haven't fully done that yet. When that will be complete is when I either die to be with the Lord or he comes to resurrect me. And he says, I know that he who began a good work in me will perfect it until that day of Christ Jesus. And he's saying, he began a good work in me, and it's not yet finished. I have not yet attained to it. The perfection work that he's working out in me is not there yet. As long, here's, here's, a, here's an interesting thing to ponder on. How long does God work on you to perfect you? <laughs> so if he hasn't yet attained it, then what does that tell you? So what is he acknowledging? That God is still working on him. <laughs> Apparently, there was still some work to be done. As long as God leaves you breathing on this earth, you have a mission, and God has a mission in you. So as long as you are still breathing, it means God is still working to bring out more glory in you, more glory for himself, because at that day of the resurrection, what does that do? What is, Paul says, so that in that day I may, what? When I don't, um, he says to press on, he talks about in that day that I will have glory, that I will not have run in vain, and that I will have glory before God because of your faithfulness, because of your pursuing him through true doctrine, through the, a true knowledge of God. And so I've not yet attained it fully. I'm still working on my own self. That's what he's saying there. I'm still working on working out my salvation. I'm not fully blameless yet. God has not yet taken me up, so I'm, I've not pursued it yet. I've not finished it yet. The work for me is not done. 
That's what he's saying. He said, um, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on. Do you see? He's talking about the pressing on, about working out his salvation in fear and trembling. And he says that I may hold of, may lay hold of that for which I also was laid hold of for by Christ. Now he's back to the resurrection again. He's saying, I'm still keeping my eyes on the resurrection. That's the goal, the prize. And he says that, I think, in the next, in the next couple of verses, brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, I forget what lies behind. What, was light, what lied behind for him in the first opening part of chapter 3? His, his life as a Pharisee, his sins, the way he boasted and bragged in his blamelessness through the law. He's saying, I put that behind me. It's rubbish. I'm pressing on. I'm reaching forward to that which lies ahead. And in verse 14, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call in, of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, now comes all these commands. This is what I want you to do. Um, he says, he says to, to do what in those? So what's the next things he tells you to do? What are his exhortations? Okay, so press on. Just keep on going about doing all these things. I want you to press on toward the goal. Um... And he speaks about that in 3.14. Now, and he, that goal is what? <coughs> that upward call, right? In Christ Jesus. And then that he says, um, that I may lay hold of that for which I was also laid hold of by Christ. I'm not going to write all that down, but that's how he concludes. It's talking about, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to summarize it for the resurrection. That resurrection day, or the day of Christ, the day of Christ Jesus, which is our to our topic right now. So he says, press on toward the goal. The goal is the resurrection. It's the upward call in Christ Jesus. It's that day of resurrection, that for which Christ laid hold of me for. Why did he lay hold of us? What is God's deepest desire for you and I? For Thank you. It's a relationship with him. Why is he saving us? That he might bring us, reconcile us to himself, that one day we will abide with him and he with us. He will, we will walk in the presence of God, that we will have an unbroken, continual relationship with him. One of the things I remember doing when I was working as a corporate chaplain, and I've told some of you guys this before, but some, there was a, a woman who had passed away who, who did not know the Lord. Um, but obviously when you're giving a memorial service, you don't speak of that. Uh, rather, you try to encourage and comfort, right? And so I was talking uh, just in generality about, about the, the process of grieving. And one of the things that God brought to me, and I, and I was able to say it to this group, and I felt like it was, it was really a word from the Lord, and that is when God created us, as human beings, placed us on planet Earth, his design for us, the way he molded us and formed us together and put us together, was that there would always be un continual, unbroken relationship, both with God and with, uh, with one another. 
That's what you were designed for. It's what you were made for. Continual relationship, unbroken relationship. But what happened when sin entered? It was broken. And because when sin entered in, then what else entered? Death. And so why do we grieve so much when people die? Because of broken fellowship. What is God's greatest desire? Continual, unbroken relationship with us. He is in the process right now of finding those whose hearts will be fully his. Those who will bow their knee to him and acknowledge that God is and that he's a rewarder of those that love him. Those who will recognize that it's not by our righteous works, but it's by his. That it's by grace that we are saved. And that he has placed within us this resurrection power that one day will resurrect us. And he wants to know that one day we will have unbroken relationship again with him and with one another. Wow, isn't that an amazing thought? One day, unbroken, never again will we see death. The verse that we read in Romans, I think it was, that says, where is your sting, O death? Right? And he says the, la- the, one, the last things for him to conquer is death. And he'll do that by the resurrection. When Jesus comes and he rules and reigns and he puts all his enemies under his feet. And what Paul says is that's what you're to be rejoicing in. That's what's going to make you joyful as you, as you endure in life. It's going to change your perspective about all your problems that come to you. It's going to change your perspective about your missions on a daily basis, what you're going to pour yourself into, what is going to become priorities for you. Are your priorities right? Are your priorities God first? Are your priorities others first? Or are you living a life that's all indulging? It's all about me and whether I'm having fun and whether I'm doing the things I love to do and do, do I get to sleep in an extra hour, which is what I'd like to do, right? But rather, maybe there's somebody who needs you to pick them up and bring them to Bible study class. Maybe there's somebody who needs you to go visit them at the hospital or the prison or your neighbor next door and just needs a hug. Maybe your friends and neighbors need the gospel right now because our world is, is under attack and everybody's feeling very vulnerable. I, you know, in many ways, I feel like right now, for us here in Texas in particular, with this recent attack against the church, it almost feels like a 9-11 again. You know, it, it's so close to home, and it was such a massive thing in a very small place. But for you and I as the, the body of Christ, this occurred within the walls of, our, of a church, and it makes us feel very vulnerable. That makes sense, does it not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. I heard that he, there was a connection through his wife. His wife's family members were there. But it doesn't matter. The attack is the attack, and the, the evilness of it is there, and the darkness of it is there. Are you enduring with joy? Do you see the evil that's out there, and is your response despair and fear and trembling in, in, in not a good way? 
or do or do you have the the joy of knowing the power of God's resurrection the true knowledge of who he is and what he's promised to us and are your eyes set on that day of his coming and do you have that as hope to give out to the world and if you do give it out right give it out Continue to walk, prove yourselves children of God, blameless and innocent, and be a light in the world. Absolutely. You know, I, I can tell you my own, in my own personal life, my brother's death in many ways brought about my own personal seeking of God. So out of really bad, horrible things in your life, God can, can bring it. Um, the death of my first child that I never held in my arms, that also was another piece of the puzzle. Through really deep tragedies, in particular death, often comes life. 